And when Chris finished his sing, leading us in singing this morning, I, I know I, I heard some amens, but I also heard some hmm when the title slide came up. I don't know if that's because you already saw what's on it or not. But we're going to be talking about deceits of the devil. I, I had originally intended to close out this series last week uh, as we closed out deceits of the devil concerning the church, but I decided to give it one more sermon. Because I think it's important for us to be reminded of some things with regards to how the devil tries to use this political sphere and realm to impact the church negatively and how he tries to use certain things to convince us to think in ways that are not wholly and appropriately biblical. And so I want to challenge you this morning before you even start thinking this is some sermon for some party or some candidate or anything of that sort. I guarantee you it is not. In fact, I sent the outline to the elders in advance. So I can guarantee you it certainly is not that. I rarely do that. You can ask them. I rarely ever send them an outline in advance to say, hey, this is what I'm preaching just a heads up for you. But they had it. They, They know. Here's the reality of the devil. He is the father of lies. And everything he speaks is a lie because there is no truth in him, right? John 8 at verse 44. And that stands in contrast to our Savior in John 10 at verse 10, who has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. All the devil wants to do is to destroy and to kill. And if he can divide and if he can persuade individuals to think in a way that is contrary to Scripture, then he wins. Bottom line, that's it. He wins. And especially if he can convince those who ought to think biblically to think in a way that is not biblical while still convincing themselves that they are thinking biblically, then man, he's really one on that account, hasn't he? Because he has someone thinking that they are just where they ought to be when they are not anywhere where they ought to be. And I have seen some interesting arguments over time. I've seen some interesting comments through the years in the realm of politics and the church. Now, I want to say one thing up front. Not all politicians are crooked. Not all politicians are terrible. I'm not addressing any one specific politician today. In fact, if you know Brother DeBerry, I would say we need a lot more Brother DeBerrys in the political world than we do about anything else, don't we? Faithful brother, faithful gospel preacher, wonderful brother in Christ. Thankful for his service. But as I grow older, and I know I'm not that old yet, but I've been around long enough to witness several election cycles now, I find myself leaning more and more toward Lipscomb, who just, by and large, didn't want anything to do with the political system at all. I'm not quite where he was, but I find myself leaning more and more that way because I've seen the damage in recent years to relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. I've seen the damage in recent years to congregations. I've seen the damage to our image to the world and how we sometimes pursue politics with more ferociousness than we do the gospel of Christ. And that's concerning to me as one who is a gospel preacher, as one whose responsibility it is before God to stand and preach the truth in righteousness and fullness week in and week out. It is concerning to me that sometimes it seems that some of my fellow preachers and some of my brethren are more concerned about who's in the office, whether it's the Oval Office or it's the office in Richmond or wherever else it is, and then they are concerned about continuing to speak regularly about the things of Christ and using their influence for that. My first experience with this was many years ago with a brother in Christ who wasn't from this region. He was close by, but not from this region. And he was so involved in the politics that when political season was on, he would not pretty much door knock. 
He had pretty much not done any of the evangelistic efforts of the congregation. He often told the brethren he couldn't participate in anything they had going on. He said, I'm too busy campaigning right now. That was the first time I ever met someone who was so entrenched that, well, it led them to spend a lot more time during only phases, right? So I guess he justified it that way on these things and on the things of the Lord. And so let's talk about these ways in which the devil can deceive us. Blank, fill it in from whatever your perspective is. Party or candidate is God's choice. Here's an interesting observation. No New Testament preacher entangled himself in politics. John the baptizer didn't do it. Jesus didn't do it. The apostles didn't do it. All recorded New Testament preachers did not do it. They didn't get themselves entangled in the politics of the day. Now you say they didn't have a democracy, a representative democracy, a republic is what we actually are in the United States of America. Say, so, well, they didn't have that. No, but they had politics all the same. Think about the appeal of the Jewish individuals at the crucifixion of Christ. Think about how they go to Pilate and basically say to Pilate, if you let this guy go, you're an enemy to Rome. And if you're an enemy to Rome, well, you know how that's going to fall, Pilate, right? They played a political card. Jesus and his disciples, they don't do that. They don't get into the middle of all of that. In fact, there were times, if you're familiar with Jesus' ministry, you know there were times when some of the questions brought to him by the scribes and Pharisees were such that they were trying to entangle him into kind of political movements and political issues. In fact, one of those, the one where out of which we get rendered to Caesar things that are Caesar's, is especially poignant for us because Jesus said no. I'm not getting into that. My work is about a kingdom that is not of this world. That's what my focus is upon. Jesus kind of set a tone for us on this regard. He called a zealot to be his disciple in Simon, Luke 6 and verse 15. And then he called Matthew, a text tax collector, to be one of his disciples. So, so these two brothers in the flesh, both Jews, would have politically been on very opposite ends of the spectrum. The zealots absolutely believed that the Romans had no right whatsoever to require taxes of Jewish citizens. Their argument was that God is our only king and with God is our only king, he's the only one to whom we owe any allegiance. And so Rome doesn't get anything from us and they at times sparked insurrection against Rome, resulting in bloodshed and, and war at times on smaller scale. But that's what the zealots were about. But here's Jesus and he takes a zealot who says, no, Rome is evil. We can't pay taxes to them. And then he takes a tax collector who works for Rome and he calls them both into his midst. Wouldn't it be great if that was the attitude that we had to say, I'm going to call somebody who's as far left as possible into Christ. And I'm going to call somebody who's as far right as possible into Christ. And we're going to unite together in Christ. That's what Jesus did with the zealot. And with the tax collector. That's an amazing testimony to the power of Christ. Isn't it? Certainly was rebuke. Think about John with Mary. He said, this woman that you have, who's your wife, you're not allowed to have her. Mark 6 verse 18, we're recorded. Certainly at times, there was the rebuke of those who were in power for the sin in their lives. That is a common thread throughout the Old Testament as well with the prophets calling out the sin of, of the people. In fact, even God through Daniel dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, didn't he? And his descendants after him. 
a, a completely Gentile king. But he deals with it. There certainly is at times in Scripture review. There is also, however, submission. Think about John chapters 18 and 19, where you have Jesus being called before the Jewish leaders, and then he's sent before Pilate, and then he's sent before Herod, then he's back to Pilate again. All the while, Jesus is submissive to him, isn't he? He's submissive to the authorities that be. The Apostle Paul, when he's arrested in the book of Acts, the disciples, when they're arrested in the book of Acts, they submit themselves to the governing powers, don't they? If it means persecution, it means persecution. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Paul says, if I've done anything worthy of death, then, then I willingly submit to it in essence. There was submission. There was a time's review, but there was always respect. If you look at Acts chapter 26 for just a moment, the apostle Paul before Agrippa and Festus is a telling example. These men are going to decide really for all intents and purposes. You know, they're talking about whether or not he's going to go on to Rome and stand before Caesar. And when Paul addresses them, beginning at verse 2 after Agrippa says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews. And you go on down. He says in verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, declared first those in Damascus. This is why the Jews tried to kill me. And, and you keep reading through this. He constantly just telling his story, making his defense. And even at verse 24, as he made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. There's this constant theme with the apostle Paul and with the disciples at large, with the apostles in particular, that when they are called to account by governing officials for what they are teaching and what they are preaching, they always speak to them with tremendous respect. Despite the fact they're being persecuted by them. Even when the disciples make that tremendous comment, the twelve make that tremendous comment, but, but Peter and John in particular, you judge whether it's right for us to obey God rather than man, but, but we're going to obey God rather than man. You remember that, don't you? There in Acts 4 and 5 and in that whole context of arrest and release and arrest and threatening and beating all that. Even in that, they said, you judge what is appropriate here. The language of the New Testament Christians when it related to the governing authorities was always that of respect. Even when the governing authorities were entirely wrong, they responded with respect. And the reason I point that out is because when we look at the, the whole of the New Testament, we don't see them entangling themselves in the politics. We see Jesus, in fact, going against the political mainstream and calling from both sides of it. We, we see them rebuking, yes, but we see them submitting. We see them acting with respect. That this is how they, they acted. This is how they behaved themselves but before those who were political. Because they had in mind something that I said already, but I'm going to repeat it now because it's important for us to get it. That there is only one kingdom and king to whom we owe full allegiance. See, that's what they recognized. They knew that ultimately they were serving Christ. They knew that ultimately they were seeking the kingdom of God and nothing else mattered as much as the kingdom of God mattered. And nothing else mattered as much as preaching the kingdom of God to those who needed to hear the gospel message. 
And so they didn't entangle themselves in the politics. They didn't bring the church alongside this political leader and say, well, well, we we think that this one's going to do the best for us. And, and, and so we really want to push you this way. We really want you to kind of encourage the Roman authorities in this regard. They didn't do any of that. And I know the argument was often made in, in response, and I've had it made to me recently. That, well, if, if they could have voted, I'm sure they listen I, we need to be careful about assuming what the first century church would have done or not done. That's not a, a legitimate argument. That's a what if maybe would. That's not a legitimate logical argument. Now we can have our opinions on that. I have mine. You probably have yours. But what we know is that these men sought one kingdom and one kingdom in particular. Let's look at Matthew 22, 15 through 22. And this is the text in which Jesus says, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's. <clears throat> I always get dry when I preach. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. We're going to go back a little bit because here 2.15, because I want us to get the fullness of it. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. You see that? It's all just trick, right? They're going to try to entangle him. And they sent him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth, nor do you care about anyone. For you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the Herodians were also a bit of a political group. And if the zealots were, let's say, the far right of the day, the Herodians were toward the other end of the spectrum. The Herodians were basically put more about submission to Rome and to the rule of the people and everything like that. And so they're just trying to entangle them. They're trying to get him to take a stand that's going to make some people mad and make other people happy. Does that sound familiar to what's going on in our own time with our own political debates? And so Jesus, perceiving their wickedness, it says in verse 18, said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. They're not answering an honest, they're not asking an honest question. They don't have honest motives. They're hypocrites. Their whole point here is to cause damage to the name and image of Christ. That, that's all. That's all they're trying to do. And perhaps provide a little bit of upswelling for their opinions, right? So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus emphasized on the coin. What did he emphasize? He emphasized the image. Didn't he? he says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. This is an affair of the things of this world. He's the governing authority. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's but render to God the things that are God's. Well, in the context, with an emphasis on image, what things could possibly be God's? Well, those standing there, they all bear an image. You and I all bear an image. We're created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I firmly believe that when Jesus said, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, Yes, pay him his taxes, but render to God the things that are God's. You belong to God, and you need to render your heart, your mind, your soul, everything to him. The first and great commandment. And these are Jews, so they know that that's the first commandment, don't they? 
They understand that that's the case. And so you pay your taxes to Caesar. The money doesn't matter, but give yourself to God and get out of all this fighting and arguing about it. That was Jesus's position in that moment. Now, I would submit to you that as we go on to Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we learn that, that Jesus is the one to whom the knee should bow. That he's the one for us, those of us who are Christians, how we perceive the powers that be. <coughs> he's the one to whom our knees should bow. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's not future tense, by the way. If you go into the original language and look at it, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. It's not saying in the future when Jesus is named and everybody's standing before him that every knee should bow. No, no, no. That's talking about the time that we're in right now. He's king now. He's exalted now. Every knee should bow now. That doesn't mean every knee will. But that's the point that Paul is making. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's what he's expressing as a reality of what should be. That our tongue should confess and our knees should bow to Jesus and to him alone. That's our allegiance. He is our king. He is the blessed and only potentate. In fact, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And notice here what the apostle says about Jesus the Christ, beginning at verse 11 and how we ought to live in this life. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless unto our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable life, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So what is his advice to Timothy? His advice to Timothy is you pursue righteousness. You live in such a way to give honor to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. That's the good confession. Because one day Jesus is going to return and show himself to be just who he is. And so he urges Timothy to focus on righteous living that is consistent with who Jesus is in view of the fact that Jesus is going to return. That's what he does. You and I need to, as God's people, be very careful when we try to speak for God. Because when we say this candidate or that party that this is the one that God would want, that this is the one that God desires to be very careful. You're speaking for him. And last I checked, God has not cried out from heaven declaring any party in this nation to be his party or any candidate in this nation to be his candidate. And so to act as though one is or isn't, that's a deceit of the devil. That's convincing us to speak where God has not spoken. Now, I understand we can have differences of opinion with regards to the freedoms that we have enjoyed in this country, with regards to certain policies that we might like to see in place as to which candidate might be better for this or for that. We might even have disagreements in regards to what party or candidate we think might be better for allowing Christianity, allowing the church to continue to function as it ought in this society without persecution. We, we might have some differences of opinion on that. And that's all well and good. 
church did not entangle itself in the politics of the day. Jesus, when they actually tried to entangle them in it, said, worry about giving God what is God's and give Caesar what is Caesar's. And then you see Paul writing to Timothy and saying to this young man, Timothy, Jesus is the one that's going to show himself to be the blessed and only potent, king of kings and lord of lords. And so, Timothy, here's what you do in your life. If you've read the rest of the first thing, Timothy, you know, avoid the foolish babblings, avoid all these arguings over words, stay out of these conflicts that are useless. And I would submit to you to a great degree, a lot of the arguing that happens in politics is just that. And he says to his young man, who is a preacher in the faith, who is supposed to be an example to the church, he says to him, here's what you need to do. Live righteously in view of the confession that Jesus is the Christ and anticipate his return when he will show himself to be king of kings. And I would challenge all of us to take that kind of approach. Because when we do, the church will be better for it. Let's get a second point here. Sometimes you hear people say it's a political, not biblical concern. Well, yes, the church isn't meant to be a political institution. Yes, we can have our opinions about politics, but there is an an error here that we've got to be careful about. First, let's read Psalm 29. (laughs) Because God is sovereign and there's no doubt about it. Invite you over to Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a cat. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flame of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying the Lord is in control. (laughs) He speaks and it happens. He sits enthroned as king and it remains even so now. And he will bless his people with peace. The Lord is sovereign. He reigns. He has all authority. And so there is no realm of moral, ethical judgment, no realm that intersects with how we ought to treat and care for one another. That the Lord has spoken on his opinion ought to be given second fiddle to a political one. Just not the case. In fact, his word is very much a standard. If you want wisdom and knowledge and discretion, where are you going to get it? Go to Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. You're going to get it through the words of the Lord. And all of that starts ultimately with the fear of the Lord, doesn't it? Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 at verse 7. And when you look at a text like 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, where Peter tells us that God has provided us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, we have in Christ and the knowledge of Christ through his word, everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. So, Let's just make this statement and we're going to move on. Now, this is just a brief point. Much the world calls political, God has already spoken concerning. Whether we're talking about abortion and life from the womb to the tomb, the wholeness of it, whether we're talking about gender, whether we're talking about LGBTQ issues, whether we're talking about justice and what biblical justice actually looks like, 
whether we're talking about how to treat the stranger that we may find in our midst, God has spoken to these things. And we need to give heed to his word first and foremost on them. They're not political issues. They are biblical ones first. And if you study enough of those, you'll find very quickly that there's no party or candidate who aligns with the word of God on all these things. That's why that first one is so dangerous to make it seem like it does. So for us, some people say, well, it's political. It's not biblical. If God has spoken on it, it's biblical, not political. That, that's the Christian perspective, isn't it? It's biblical, not political, because God has spoken. He's spoken. And if he is king over all, and if at his voice, whatever is commanded should happen, Psalm 29 again. If we're going to be judged by that word, read John chapter 12, right? Jesus had a long exchange with the leaders of that day about the word that he was speaking. He said, the word that I've spoken, the same shall judge you in the last day. In fact, that's the word that Paul says we ought to give earnest heed to not let slip, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's the word that is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We could keep listing scriptures, couldn't we? But we need to move on. If God has spoken, it is biblical and not political. We need to not fall into that trap with the world where someone, when we're trying to talk about something, say, well, that's, that's just a political thing. It, no, no, no. God's spoken. It's, it's biblical first. And that's why people of genuine faith get ourselves in trouble sometimes, right, with the world. Finally, one, one final deceit of the devil I want to add here. These are different times. I've heard this said a lot, especially over the last few years or so. These are different times in which we're living. There's a temptation to forsake responsibility when someone says that. And I've heard it used as an excuse. Well, these are different times. And, and so, you know, this idea of submission and, and respect, we, these are different times in which we're living. And so for the last many, many years, I've seen Christians on both sides of the political spectrum lambast, denigrate, disrespect, and all around speak evil of individuals in office from both sides of the aisle and from both sides of the political spectrum. When we do that, brethren, the devil wins. Because we neglect to be who we are called to be. I already demonstrated at the beginning how whether you're talking about Jesus or you're talking about Paul or the others, they always submitted and showed respect even when it was in the moment of persecution. I think a telling example of the kind of attitude we ought to have is in the garden when the mob comes to arrest Jesus and Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus heals the ear and tells Peter to put his sword away. He went with the mob, didn't he? He allowed himself to be falsely tried. He allowed himself to be beat and spat upon. He allowed himself to be mocked. He allowed himself to be scourged. He allowed himself to have a crown of thorns platted. There's a reason why the old translations use that word because the idea isn't just placed. The idea is smashed onto his head. He allowed himself to be humiliated, stripped bare before anyone who was there to see. He allowed himself to be nailed to that cross. He allowed himself to hang there in shame as far as the law of Moses was concerned, right? He allowed himself to be jeered and, and mocked even more by the audience there at the foot of the cross. 
He allowed his garment to be divided. He allowed them to cast lots for his other possessions. Jesus allowed all of that. Paul will eventually be killed by Rome, Peter too. Other disciples and apostles will be martyred for the sake of the cause of Christ. All through it, they submit. We need to be careful. That we don't use the excuse. These are different times. Things are hurt worse than they've ever been. Yada, yada, yada. My friends, read some history. Get some perspective. But more importantly, read the scripture and get a better perspective. That it doesn't matter the time. It doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter who's in charge. What matters is that we live according to scripture. Let's look at a couple of these verses. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 17. While you're turning, get another drink of water. See, I haven't preached from the pulpit this long in a while. I know we're running long. Therefore, submit to yourselves. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now we can look at these other verses, Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, Acts 23 at verse 5, where Paul says, I would not have spoken so, and I realized who you were because it is written, you shall not speak evil of your rulers. We need to take that to heart earnestly. No matter which side of the spectrum we're on and not allow the devil to convince us, well, these are different times and so we can be brash and we can, we can be crude and, and we can speak in all these ways that, no, my friends, we're Christians. No matter what the time is in which we live. Secondly to that, there's a temptation to forsake responsibility to morality. Proverbs 14, 34, yes, righteousness exalts a nation and sin is reproached to any people. Yes, Proverbs 16 and verse 12 still says that the king ought to be one who is moral and upright, who is righteous. Yes, most certainly God cares about the morality of our leaders. And we need to be willing to acknowledge that and not excuse immorality in our leaders no matter which party they come from. In fact, if you cannot point out the flaws of your party and its candidate, then you might have an idol in your heart. That candidate or that party might just be so endeared to you that you can't speak evil because he has or she has or it has, in the case of a party, become more of a god than a political position. Now, granted, we need to be fair in that regard, don't we? We need to expect moral living out of all of our political leaders, no matter who they are, what side of the party they're from. But that's the consistency Christians are called to have. That is the moral clarity that we are called to have, just to understand and to judge behavior by the Scripture, no matter who it is, including if it's ourselves, right? James warns us about those who look into the perfect law of liberty and turn away only to do nothing about it, doesn't he? He warns us to not be that kind of a person. Read James chapter 1, you'll see that. And finally, I, I want to add this. Some would say these are different times, and so 
they allow fear to reign in their hearts. They allow the worry over which candidate or which party is going to be in power to, to cause them to lose sleep, to have anxiety, to, to literally suffer emotionally over it. You say, well, these are uncertain times. These are difficult times in which we live. We, we don't know what's going to happen. Do you remember what's said in Daniel 4 and verse 25? When God is addressing Nebuchadnezzar that he might know that God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Do you think God has stopped reigning? We just read earlier in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 that Christ has been exalted above every power. Every power. Every means every and power means power, which means it doesn't matter who is in power on the face of this earth. My God is still in power over everything and everyone on the face of this earth. My Savior is King of kings and Lord of lords. So don't allow these uncertain times, brethren, to steal your joy in Christ. Don't allow these uncertain times to cause you to forsake what you know you ought to believe and how you ought to think and how you ought to behave. But rather, don't in, in this time and in all times, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And let me add one final verse by way of conclusion here. Second Timothy chapter two, at verse four. It's not up there on the screen. I don't put my concluding notes on the screen. My kids might like that because they try to take the notes. <laughs> I love that something that, that Paul tells the young man in this text. He charges him when you read verses one and two to be strong in the grace of the Lord and what you've heard from me commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he charges Timothy to, to be a faithful servant and keep on teaching others who can teach others. And then in verse three, he says, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But then he adds this in verse four. He says, you're, you're a soldier of Christ. There's going to be some difficulty. There's going to be some challenge. Then he adds this in verse four. And I think this is telling for us. No one engaged in warfare. And don't mistake it. We're engaged in warfare, aren't we? If you read Ephesians chapter six and the call to put on the whole armor of God, we are engaged in warfare. But notice what he says here. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. There is political engagement that is plenty appropriate and right for us to be involved in as God's people. So don't leave here today saying Ben says we can't have anything to do with any of it at all because that's not what I'm saying. I focused on three primary problems that the devil can deceive us into. The first one being to try and convince us that fill in the blank this candidate or this party. Well, that's God's choice. If we don't elect him, we're, we're not following what God would want us to follow. And if you don't cast a vote for him, then are you really a Christian? We've got to check ourselves. We've got to be careful. We can't make that kind of a statement because God hasn't made it. Secondly, to have this idea that some would say, well, this is a political concern, not a biblical concern. And generally when they do that, it's to excuse the political action. Because they have some kind of, of allegiance to the party or the candidate or some kind of allegiance to that position. So that's a political issue. We've got to keep the Bible out of it. If the Bible speaks to it, the Bible speaks to it, which makes it a biblical issue and not a political issue. Because you and I are Christians first and we adhere to God and his word first above all else. 
And finally, these are different times. Friends, don't allow, please, don't allow the uncertainty of the times in which we live to cause you to be uncertain about the God whom you serve. He still reigns. We're still called to submit and respect no matter who it is in office, no matter whether we agree with them or not. And we are still called as God's people to expect righteousness from our leaders, no matter who they are or which side of the they come from. And so fundamentally, what this all boils down to, what I want to encourage you to do throughout this political season, and let's be honest, it seems like the political season never ends anymore, right? I mean, doesn't that seem about how it feels anymore? It feels like it never ends. So here's what I want to encourage all of us to do. Just strive to do one thing above all else. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. That's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't give your allegiance to kingdoms of this world when our allegiance must always be to the king who rules over this world. It's a high calling to bear the name of Christ. But brethren, I believe we're capable of it because we have the encouragement of one another and we have the truth of God's word before us day and night whereby we can grow and learn and know how it is that we ought to speak and do in this world in which we live. Now, if you're struggling in your life to, to, to put first things first and get things right, or it might not be politics, it might be something else. Now is a great time to say, brother, I need your help. I need the prayers of the church to appeal to your shepherds to say, hey, I've been straining. You might not have, not, might not have known what's been in my heart, but I've been, I've been having some problems. Let, let me... Let me let you into my life so that you can help to guide me. Your brother or sister and you're struggling now is that time. It's before you to come and acknowledge that and seek help. And if there's one sitting here this morning who hasn't yet obeyed the gospel of Christ, you might think this is, this is a sermon not really directed at salvation or anything in the story. You can kind of be right. You'd also be a little off. The reason why is because Salvation is fundamentally, ultimately about submission to God. It's about obedience from the heart to the will of God. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. And what I've been challenging those of us who are Christians already this morning to do is not forget that. And what I challenge you now to do if you have not obeyed the gospel of Christ is to submit yourself to the will of God and be saved. Now, the way you do that is, yes, to hear the gospel of Christ and to come to faith, Romans 10, verse 17. But coming to faith isn't just about then acknowledging Jesus as Christ, though confession with the mouth is needed to salvation, Romans 10, 9 and 10. But you must also repent because God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17, 30 and 31. And you must be immersed, you must be baptized 
for the remission of your sins, buried in the waters of baptism, that the old man will be put to death and a new man can be born to life. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. Acts 22, verse 16. So many other passages. If you don't know what you need to do to be saved, let us study with you. If you do know when you're ready to obey, then why don't you come? Brother Chris is going to lead us in a song of invitation.